So welcome everybody to Bitcoin Optech newsletter number 234 recap, Twitter spaces. Um, we'll go through introductions and then we'll jump into the newsletter. Um, Mike Schmidt, contributor to Optech and executive director at Brink, where we fund Bitcoin open source developers. Merch? Hi, I'm Merch. I work at Chaincode Labs. I work on many different Bitcoin y things, explain Bitcoin to people on Bitcoin Stack Exchange, and help with Optech. And we have a special guest this week, James O'Byrne. James, you want to introduce yourself? Give some background? Sure, yeah. Um, so thanks for having me, first off. Um, I've been working on Bitcoin Core for, I guess, technically like eight years now. Um, on and off radically. Right now, I'm employed by NYDIG as a full-time open source developer, so that's what I spend most of my day doing. Um, in the past, I've worked for Chaincode, and I'm an old-time uh, Optech emeritus, I guess. Yeah, you were, were you one of the founding contributors? Yeah, it was me, John, and Steve Lee. Excellent. Yeah, two of my favorite people here on the Twitter spaces, Merch and, and James. So thanks for joining us. Um, Merch, any announcements before we jump in? I got nothing. All right. Well, let's jump into it. Um, I shared a few tweets. If folks want to follow along, jump into the newsletter or follow along with those tweets to see what we're talking about. Um, we release a weekly newsletter on Wednesday mornings. Um, central time and we'll be going through that now this is 234 and the first item on the news list is a proposal for new vault specific opcodes um james i think it's best that you introduce your proposal and maybe um, as a way to see the idea to folks maybe just go through some of the background about maybe what vaults are and, and what the problem is that you're trying to solve. And then we can jump into how you address that with these opcodes. Yeah, sure. So that's a lot to tackle, but I'll give it a shot. Um, vaults are something that people have been talking about in Bitcoin for a long time. Um, I think going back to, I think it's like 2015 when, um, Eamon Gunsier and a, a few other people wrote a paper called um, uh, Covenants in Bitcoin or something along those lines. Um, but the basic idea is that if you had covenant functionality in Bitcoin, which is basically just the ability to restrict the flow of funds, not only on the basis of an unlocking script, but on the basis of the structure of the transaction and future transactions potentially that it's flowing into, you can do this thing um, called a vault. And the basic idea of a vault is just that you encumber coins in such a way that if you want to spend them outside of a, a very predefined um, recovery flow, then you have to wait some period of time. And during this period of time, um, you can sweep those coins into your predefined uh, recovery flow. So the idea is that you might have some kind of a wallet set up that facilitates, you know, relatively convenient access to your to your Bitcoin. Um, but if a hacker gets a hold of that and starts to try and run away with your coins, then you can have either a process or, you know, a third party watching the chain to see if if an attempted spend is going on um, and then intervene by sweeping your coins into this predetermined recovery path. So 
Um, people have been talking about this for a while. And um, after these guys proposed a kind of generic covenant formulation to do this in their paper, um, sometime later, Brian Bishop kind of um, at least implemented, if not devised, a way to, to emulate this behavior with pre-signed transactions. Um, and so the deal there is that you generate this ephemeral key um, that you hope only lives for a, a short lifetime. And um, with that ephemeral key, you pre-sign some transactions. You send your coins sort of you know, into the transactional structure that's governed by this ephemeral key. Then you delete the ephemeral key. Um, and obviously, there are, there are some issues with this. You know, not only do you have to hope that you properly deleted the key, but you have to keep track of these pre-signed transactions because if you lose those, then your you know your Bitcoin is just gone. Um, so there's more sensitive material to to kind of keep track of. And then, if you're predetermining the structure of the transactions, you're kind of locked into you know static addresses and static fee rates. Um, and that makes it, you know, potentially more difficult and perilous to, to actually manage the vaults. Um, so when we uh, were in the in the phase of kind of considering CTV, and, and maybe we're still in that phase, I hope, um, I took the opportunity to do an implementation of this style of vault, but making use of uh, object template verify. And what that does is it allows you to avoid having to rely on generating these ephemeral keys because basically you're using an on-chain mechanism to enforce the structure of the transactions that you come up with. And that's just check template verify where you're basically pre-generating this graph of transaction that's possible. You're coming up with kind of a root hash for that. And then you're locking the coins under that hash. And so I liked that because it, it simplified things operationally a little bit. You didn't have to rely on this ephemeral key. Um, but unfortunately, you are still pre-generating this graph of transactions. And so that means you're locking yourself into fee rates. You're um, pre-specifying you know, the withdrawal path for this vault, which means that Anytime you want to actually withdraw from the vault, you have to go through this predetermined flow. And if someone's, you know, captured the the keys to that flow, then you're you're kind of in trouble, and you have to fall back to the recovery path. Um, and it introduces some, um, you know, some some uh, chain space waste uh, just by nature of having to do these extra steps. And so, meanwhile, I, I was looking at the way that the covenants. Uh, exploration was going and I was a little bit dismayed um, by how open-ended and um, sort of general a lot of the proposals were. Um, it, it's hard for me to reason about how something like Opcat, um, you know, would work in practice. And I was, I was concerned that if we got one of these general covenant mechanisms that, um, the resulting script sizes using these mechanisms would be really, really big, uh, and and would result in you know a lot of chain space waste um, for for operations that might be relatively common. So I kind of said to myself, okay, well, what if we stepped back and came up with this thought experiment? What if we came up with a mechanism that was just intended to do vaults and maybe did some covenanty stuff, kind of you know as as a second order effect. What would that look like? Um, and even if that's not a real proposal, maybe we can use that to kind of benchmark 
perspective proposals against, um, because I, I really do think that vaults are a very important um, use case, both for small scale users of Bitcoin and obviously for you know businesses that deal with managing a lot of Bitcoin. So I, I started to kind of write this paper, surveying both the existing approaches and some of the you know, outstanding covenant proposals and how they how they interface with vaults. And and I um, I came up with, you know, this fictional construct op vault, which kind of just does exactly what you hope it does for vaults. Um, and then I decided it would be interesting to try and actually implement this. And so um, I took a week and did an implementation. And I was surprised to find that um, the implementation actually worked out and it was pretty concise and um, I thought sort of straightforward, but it, it, it gave you all these nice features um, that allowed vault operation to be pretty seamless. So I'll stop there and, and uh, see if everybody's followed. Cool, thanks for that overview. Um, so I think that that's a great way of approaching the subject, especially if you're interested in such a specific application to argue from, hey, I want this application, what do I need to get that application, rather than to have this, yeah, as you said, open-ended process, look what I can do, we could use it for X, um, yeah. Uh, so I, I was reading over Harding's excellent write-up uh, on your proposal, and I think I would like to take a little step back and ask some very stupid questions. So um, how many addresses are involved in your wallet scheme? Where do the funds sit uh, in the beginning? Like, is it is it in the highly trusted path? Is it in the, the uh, low? trusted path but has only one way to to flow out could you like give us a rundown on how do the funds move through your vault system in the happy path case um like with yeah as simple yeah. as well <laughs> yeah 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 for sure so um to get to the the beginning of your question in terms of the number of addresses kind of in use for this vault scheme it really depends on what your desired operation is as an end user. Because uh, let me let me describe um, sort of yeah the happy path flow. Um, so if you want to use this feature, what you do is you um, send some coins to a script pub key that has the following formulation. It's going to have the op vault opcode, and then there are three parameters associated with that opcode. The first one is the recovery specification. Um, and that is basically a hash of the script pub key um, target for your recovery path that you're allowed to at any time sweep the funds to. Um, and then an, the other component of that recovery parameter is the script pub key, the optional script pub key that you have to satisfy to actually trigger um, that recovery process. So when I first proposed a fault, um, I didn't actually have that script pub key guarding the recovery process. And that meant that if you used a recovery path across multiple vaults that, you know, if, if you recovered one of them, you could replay that against all of the other sort of like vaults. Um, and so, you know, after some discussion uh, and a recommendation from AJ Towns, I decided to introduce the optional functionality to guard that recovery process uh, by another key. So that's kind of optional. So that's parameter one is the recovery stuff. 
Um, okay, so let me recap. So the first one is basically, at any point in time, I can take the funds out of this first address and move them into safe storage. Yeah, and right. You do have to sign though with the first address's key, sort of, uh, in order to engage it. Otherwise, other people could basically always lock up all your funds immediately. Um, well, so they, they may not actually be able to lock up your funds immediately, even if you didn't have that key signing, because again, you're, you're giving the hash of the target script pub key, the, you know, the script pub key itself is sort of the pre-image. Right, right, right. It's, it's a pre-image, um, but once it has been used once, I mean, sorry, third party. Yeah, yeah. Could yeah, replay yeah. and sweep all of your funds into your vault instead of just whatever you intended to do it for the first time. Yeah, exactly. Huh? And, and the rationale there, um, the reason that I didn't start off by guarding it with a key sign is that if the, the odds are, like, if you're using a vault and let's say that you have multiple, you know, coins deposited into this vault, so to speak, if you're using the recovery tap for one of those coins, odds are that something's really gone wrong with the vault itself. And you're trying to, and, and, and so in any case, you should be recovering sort of everything there. But, um, you know, I, I guess that may not be the case uh, for certain reasons. And so um, decided to add that optional functionality to guard the recovery path by uh, an additional, you know, script pub key option. Cool. Okay, I think I understand the first um, route of the the script pub key. What's the second? Right. So, going back to you know creating the initial script for this vault, you've got the recovery parameter which we just talked about, and then you've got the spend delay. And that dictates how long, um, in terms of a relative time lock, you have to wait between triggering an unvault and actually finalizing that unvault to your ultimate target. Um, so that's pretty straightforward. And then the third parameter is the unvault script pub key hash, which, um, you know, kind of like we just talked about with the recovery, that's the specification for how you actually un um, authorize an unvaulting process to begin. So um, packaging those three parameters up into an op vault, you have an address that you can send, you know, multiple UTXOs to. Now, this gets um, a little bit more complicated, potentially, if you want to actually stagger your recovery path, you could say generate some keys offline, you know, in a super cold way, and then get an XPUB for those keys. And then um, you could generate different vaults uh, that have different recovery paths, um, but are governed, you know, by the same um, recovery key sort of functionally. Um, so anyway, um, that's, you know, you, you have some optionality in terms of, you know, how many addresses that you use, but I think one, you know, user-friendly method might be to just basically reuse the, the vault parameters and you can send, you know, multiple UTXOs into the same vault. And then at... Um, Unvault time, what happens is you can spend multiple vaulted coins into the same compatible unvault, op unvault output. And um, basically, uh, coins that are compatible are coins that have the same spend delay um, and the same recovery path. And um, you can spend those into a shared op unvault output. Um, and the idea there is that um, when you're spending an op vault, 
you um, the script interpreter is basically saying, okay, I'm I want to ensure that this op vault is being spent into a you know a single op unvault output um, that has these compatible parameters and ensures that you're you know using the same spend delay and the same recovery path. And so from there, what happens is with the op unvault output, you're specifying what I call a, a target hash, and that's basically um, it's almost a CTV like hash of the set of outputs and amounts that you're trying to unvault to. Um, and then um, that op unvault output sits there for whatever the relative time lock that you specified. Um, and then at any point after that, they, um, that op unvault can be spent into a transaction that matches that target hash. Um, and so while that transaction is pending, of course, it can be um, all the all, all the coins can be swept into your recovery path. Okay, so the unvault operation is not tied to a specific staging address afterwards because it is the mechanism by which you can more flexibly send the funds somewhere else. But they incurred the delay that you had previously specified in the op vault, and only after the delay is over and during the delay, um, basically just like an HTLC, the other party where the other party can take the funds if you've revealed um, the secret to them before, you can take it back to your highly trusted setup. Whereas um, after the delay, you can only send it to a transaction that you have predefined. Is that about right? Yep, that's right. Um, yeah, in many ways, I think the HTLC lightning analog is pretty useful here because um, you know, it, just as you described, it's, it, it is basically sort of this contestation period um, where you can intervene or not intervene. And um, of course, that, that sort of uh, points to the use of watchtowers. Uh, so one comment where I um, made the laughing emoji earlier, uh, XPUBs are so 2020, you should really uh, use a descriptor here. And uh, have you looked at combining your proposal with Miniscript uh, is what, what I was thinking there? Yeah, that, um, as you can tell, I'm, I'm um, a geriatric old timer, and so I'm not up to date on uh, uh, the latest Miniscript stuff. So I haven't looked at... Um, actually how OpVault would interface with Miniscript. If, but that's, I guess, if, if that's something that's important, that's something that I'll ultimately find out about, I guess. Okay, and I have another follow-up question. So you said that it is only compatible, if you want to do an OpUnVault, you can only unvault the uh, funds that are compatible. And this is, of course, because OpUnVault repeats the same uh, trusted spending path commitment, right? Uh, so um, I, I was first, when you said that, thinking, why wouldn't I be able to unvault multiple vaults in parallel uh, as long as I just wait for the longest delay period among them? But uh, it is only compatible with the same script because you have to repeat it in the OpUnVault. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and obviously, the recovery paths have to match because if you're sweeping, um, you know, a single UTXO to recovery, then uh, then you can't mix those. So we get a funny, interesting trade-off here where uh, we essentially get more flexibility about how many, how much funds we want to unvault, but only if we reuse addresses. Um, 
So if we use the descriptor slash XPub idea to to have a set of different vaults that are all derived from a chain of keys, we we would lose that flexibility and would only be able to unvault discrete amounts corresponding to whatever we had staged in each separate vault. Uh, but then we wouldn't have adversary use. Just a thought. Yeah, that's right. So I mean, it's it's sort of a classic trade-off in my mind between privacy and efficiency. Cool, um, Mike. We I think we got one question from the audience. Um, yeah, yeah. Really. Have you looked into we, before we jump to that? Um, Merch, you were sort of asking about the flow, and I just wanted to confirm as well. It sounds like. You have the initial output that you want to be vaulted, which then moves into an op vault output, which then at a later time moves into an op unvault or trigger output, which then finally results in the final output. Is that right? There's there's the initial if you count the initial output and the final output, then there's there's four outputs along this path. Is that right, James? I think that's right. Yeah, it depends on, yeah, if you're including the initial output that you're vaulting, then it's it's four total outputs. But it's okay. important to, to note that one of the strengths of this proposal, I think, is that, um, you know, if, if you're doing, let's say you're doing a daily DCA on your, on your exchange and you want to have it automatically deposit into your vault, um, with this scheme, you, you actually can join those disparate outputs into a single, you know, unvault or recovery operation. Whereas historically those, those would have to be, you know, um, in different life cycles for in different vaults. Okay, I'm I'm just staring at the description again, and I think our speaker request uh, dro dropped off. So, um, you said that the third parameter on the vault uh, up vault is a commitment to a less trusted spending path. Uh, what is what is this in the up vault? I'm not sure if we've talked about this. So, the commitment to the highly trusted spending path is clear. That's our uh, lock everything down. Something has gone wrong path, which then takes effort to to get the funds out of later, but makes them very safe. Um, so, does the vault have have um, a escape valve to say my mobile wallet for for convenient access to spending money, or what is that that third part of the vault? Yeah, so that's simply the commitment to what is able to authorize the start of uh, the unvault process, or what I call the the trigger transaction. So that's basically just saying, you know, what what can begin an all uh, an, an unvault process. And uh, oh, this is the key that that says, hey, um, put put it in the lockbox, or hey, uh, create the up unvault, and then uh, the waiting period, which still has the lockbox option in parallel. Yeah, I see. I see. Okay, cool. What else are we missing about your proposal? Uh, do you do you want to get into the nitty gritty somewhere still, or what? What sort of in information and uh, communication are you looking to get? Do you want feedback, or uh, what? What should our list listeners approach you with? Yeah, I'd. Um, I, I guess I'd really like to hear from both you know, individual users and, and perhaps people who are, who are doing um, you know, large, you know, commercial 
kind of Bitcoin operations um, because this proposal for me was very much motivated by not only my own desires as kind of an individual Bitcoin user, but watching the evolution of custody systems, you know, at a few different businesses. And, um, you know, I think both are really critical functions uh, to serve well in Bitcoin. So, um, yeah, I guess I'd, I'd just like feedback on, um, you know, whether this interface meets the needs of users. Yeah, and like, hint, hint, Rodolfo and Jameson. <laughs> yeah, I had I had a question on on that note. Um, obviously, the proposal's out. You're seeking feedback on it. I think you've gotten some good feedback, and we can touch on that briefly. I'm curious, as somebody who's proposing a new feature, a new opcode, uh, did you? work with any custodians or exchanges or software developers before this proposal? It, I, obviously you have in, in different capacities and, and you've built up that knowledge incidentally over your years, but did you specifically go to gather requirements or do any discovery from the ecosystem other than what you've already done naturally? Yeah. At, at the risk of being sort of brief, um, I, I don't want to, you know, um, divulge too much about how, how, who who is involved in that process, but um, yeah, there was a lot of boots on the ground gathering of uh, requirements. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, obviously, Optech part of part of our mission is to liaise information from developers to the broader ecosystem. But um, one thing I'm also curious is is how that how that information flows the other way from from businesses and users back to developers, which is why I asked that question. So um, it's nice that you spoke with some people beforehand. Um, and then to the to the feedback part, uh, the proposal received quite a bit of what I would call constructive feedback on the mailing list. It wasn't just necessarily um, you know rah rah or poking holes, but you, you mentioned AJ's concern about th third parties freezing funds, and it sounds like you've adapted the proposal to, to handle that. Um, I think another point of constructive feedback was from Greg Sanders and, and talking about doing a pay to taproot construction. Do you want to comment on, on that piece? Yeah. So when I initially released the proposal, um, partially just out of kind of ease of implementation. The way that it had to work was that the op unvault output had to be bare so that the script interpreter could verify that all the, the parameters were carried forward from the op vault output. And um, I was sitting across from Greg uh, kind of while a lot of this was going on and, you know, picking his brain and, and he's just kind of a wealth of knowledge about uh, uh, scripting. And so, his response was like, well, look, why don't you just, you know, put the additional information that you need to construct expected script hashed, you know, outputs. And then you can just, you can seal the whole vault process in, you know, either pay to taproot or pay to witness script hash um, if you want to. And so uh, that was a really good suggestion and um, it was actually pretty easy to implement. So. Thankfully, it got implemented. Um, the other suggestion that came in from AJ as well was this idea of adding an optional output during the op unvault transaction um, to, to facilitate an immediate redeposit of the balance of the vault into um, you know, the same vault construction that you were pulling out of. And that just allows you to, to manage the remaining balance separately from the pending unvault process. So, so all those were great pieces of feedback. And I think um, 
what I liked about this process was I think because I came to the table with a completed implement or a relatively complete draft implementation, you know, people could very quickly see sort of, okay, what exactly are you doing? What's going on here? Um, and it was easy then to, to sort of give concrete suggestions about how the proposal might be better. Well, uh, one other criticism that I think that you've already addressed and is maybe not even part of the proposal per se was um, Andrew Chow commenting on address reuse. Um, do you have anything further to say on, on that? I mean, it's, it sounds like you could reuse the address, but you could also choose to, to generate a new one. So maybe the, the point is, is moot there. Yeah, I think the design right now just defers that decision to the end user. And I'd be very curious if anybody has any ideas for how to, you know, batch the spend of vaults that don't don't have, um, you know, compatible parameters, at least explicitly, like maybe they hide behind the same XPUB uh, or descriptor. But um, I, I, you know, my gut tells me that's going to be um, difficult, if not sort of infeasible to do especially with an implementation that isn't isn't really hairy. So um, I, I just think that might be kind of a fundamental limitation of the problem space. Um, and again, I, I think the best that I could think to do is to defer that choice to end users. Can you comment um, at all about the, the batching features of this proposal? It, it, it sounds like you've taken that into account and, and batching is supported, but maybe you just want to comment a level deeper on that. Yeah, so again, looking at, um, you know, uh, if, if, if you think about both the industrial user and, and the individual user, for the industrial user, um, there's really good reason to want to do these vaults if you're if you're if you have some kind of a custody system, um, but uh, the prospect of having a separate life cycle where you have this you know say four output life cycle um, for each UTXO that you're vaulting, the chain space implications there really add up quite a bit, and if and if you have a situation where uh, there's an attacker that's compromised your unvault keys and you need to sweep to recovery, um, you need to be careful that you've chosen uh, your spend delay to facilitate enough chain space to be able to, you know, do do those those uh, end life cycles to recover your, um, your vaults because you may get into a situation where, you know, you're slamming the chain with all of these these recovery transactions and, and you know, fees go up and, and so forth. Um, and then, you know, kind of you have the same problem as an individual user, although likely the, the counts of UTXOs aren't as high. But I mean, you know, again, if you go back to sort of the daily DCA use case where you've got, you know, 365 vault um, UTXOs per year, um, you know, managing those separately would be very, very cumbersome. And so this ability to batch, um, as, I, as I've kind of gone down the road on this design, um, seems more and more critical to actually sort of practically um, manage this stuff because otherwise you're just you're just creating a tremendous number of outputs, um, and you you may have difficulty kind of responding to an attack in time. So, 
Um, I mean, I've certainly not spent enough time to think about this, but if you put the op vault operation into a script leaf of a page template output, the um, key path could be a music construction of the uh, highly trusted path. So even if you can then use the unvault to extract uh, and reuse the un unvault. It A wouldn't be immediately visible on the chain because it's hidden in the script tree. And uh, B, you could combine all of those UTXOs, but you could have a tweak for the key paths to make them all look differently, and you could still batch pay them together by using your highly trusted setup. I does this does this like just off the top of my head, but um, I think that a pay to taproot construction could come in extremely handy here to give you both more privacy and still the ability to batch all the say in your DCA case outputs together uh, in a clean fashion. Anyway, um, so we should look more into the page-to-taproot thing. <laughs> Merch, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually really thrilled you brought that up because that's exactly how I wrote it in the functional test cases. So if you look at the functional test that I attached with the implementation, that's, that is exactly the structure that I use by default. So you can always immediately spend the uh, vault outputs with your uh, recovery path. Cool. And yeah, yeah, if the, yeah, anyway, uh, let, let's chat about that some other time a little more. <laughs> sure. Okay, after I thought a little more about it. Um, anything else about your upvote proposal? Or maybe, what do you think, Mike? Is this a good point to take a question about this? So if James has something else later, we can let him go after. Yeah, we can open up the floor. For, if anybody listening has a question, feel free to raise your hand or request speaker access. Um, while you consider your question, <clears throat> I'll pose one to, to James here. I think, James, you had touched upon some of the incidental uh, non-vault-related scripting that could be done with these opcodes, uh, like some of the features of OpCTV potentially. Do you want to comment in, in a somewhat quick manner about what, what sort of things this could also enable besides this use case that we've walked through? Sure. So, um, yeah, kind of, kind of funny enough, the, the target hash that I described with the uh, unvault process, that actually looks a lot like CTV. And people very quickly realized, um, uh, to my entertainment, that you can emulate CTV kind of by um, skipping the op vault output and just sending coins directly to an op unvault with a zero spend delay. Um, and then, and then a, um, a recovery path that points to nothing. Um, and then coming up with basically a CTV hash for the target hash. Um, and I mean, I, I find it funny that so many people are excited about doing this because it's like, well, Hey, maybe we should just, you know, look at including CTV as well. But, um, uh, one, some of the things that you can do with this, you know, Ben Carmen posted to the mailing list, um, talking about, how you could use Lloyd's um, DLC efficiency schemes um, that previously relied on CTV. You could you could basically do those same 
do that same scheme with uh, the op on vault use. And I'm sure there are more, you know, CTV-ish, um, you know, perhaps any any use case that applies to CTV might apply to this like unvolved hack, but I haven't I haven't looked closely at it. Looks like we have some potential comments and questions. Uh, Rodolfo, I think you were first. Hey, I, sorry, I missed uh, by the time you said my name there. I lost the context. Um, so, uh, James, uh, we were talking on a sidebar there before. Um, so my, my main concern with this setup is uh, you still have a key, right? That is your sort of like backup ultimate nuclear key. Um, and, and that's sort of like, at least in, in my mind, puts you back into the same square one of having to defend that key, right? Like, if anything, it's kind of worst because, you know, you have this awesome complication, right, that, like, prevents attackers from doing something. But uh, now you have a single point of failure with that key where they can just drain everything. Um, is there, like, would you, like, nest that into another sort of uh vault or like how, how would you handle that sort of like nuclear key yeah so i think it's important to remember that um you know people can't sweep to your pe people need to know two pieces of information potentially to, to sweep into the recovery and that's number one the the, the pre-image of the script pub key hash and number two if if you choose to obviously being able to sign with the script pub key you specify so it's not like an attacker can just kind of like trivially route you into the recovery path. So that's, that's where I would push back on this idea that it's just kind of okay. deferring the complexity. And then the other thing to keep in mind is like, um, you know, the recovery path is, is almost like, uh, I, I wouldn't expect that you're going to be using that. It's almost like an insurance policy. It's like if, if, you know, like um, in some of the industrial operations, I've seen like the, the unvault key is not, a, a trivial, it's not like a hot wallet just sitting on some computer. And, you know, if I was using it, um, you know, my unvault key would be like, say, an offline cold card. Um, so it, it would still be, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's like a measure that you would take, you know, to, to safeguard your keys in the first place. It's just that this, this recovery path is um, kind of like uh, an uncorrelated fail safe. So it's, it's, from my perspective, it's just additive in terms of security. So, um, so, so like, if we go sort of like uh, dumb this down, right? You, you know, what you're describing is you have a key, right? And then you have another piece of information that is also like, uh, like sensitive, right? So you have two pieces of information you're going to need to recover uh, um, as your recovery setup, right? Your nuclear setup. Uh, so, so like. I don't know, my, my stupid brain just keeps on going back to like, then why create the complication, right? It's like, what am I gaining uh, if I steal back at like having two pieces of information that I need to recover? Um, maybe, maybe I'm just... Well, I'm <laughs> yeah, yeah, please, James. All right. Um, so, you know, I've been thinking about this a fair amount myself. You know, obviously, if you're creating... A vault construction here. Yes, you are adding complexity. Now, I think James, uh, his particular proposal has decreased the complexity by potentially an order of magnitude compared to a lot of the other proposals uh, that have come in the past decade. Oh, for sure. But the way that I've started to think about this is actually in terms of 
proactive versus reactive security. And uh, you know, as any of us who have been developing wallets are aware, uh, this is like Bitcoin security in general. You know, this is a bearer asset. Uh, there's really no flexibility when it comes to making mistakes. Uh, you know, the d default. You know, single sig setup. Uh, it's very easy to have single points of failure. Basically, if you have a point of failure, it tends to be catastrophic. And so that's why over the years we've gone down this path of creating more complex constructions with things like you know multi-signature, you know, distributed keys, so on and so forth. Because we're basically we're trying to build higher walls to have stronger proactive security security and and to allow a little bit of you know extra redundancy uh, you know allow for some mistakes to happen but still if somehow all of these measures you've put in place fail it tends to be catastrophic now with a vault construction like this all of a sudden you have the ability to react you can tell on Shane if your setup has been compromised, it's um, it's kind of analogous to you know, HTLC constructions and the sort of game theory that is being used with the Lightning Network, where you know you can have watchtowers that can tell if someone's trying to cheat you. So I kind of I see a potential path forward with you know. Well, call it well thought out vault constructions because obviously it will be possible to create poorly thought out vault constructions and, and, and key setups. But you can essentially create a new type of game theory so that even if all of your proactive security measures fail, you have this fallback mechanism that can you know, react and try to get you back into a, a sort of happy state. Now, you know, I do believe that you know you would end up having essentially you know two different strongly proactive setups. You know, you'd have your your primary vault setup and you'd have the recovery uh, wallet setup. But it, it seems that this, as a sort of fundamental building block for Bitcoin security, uh, it really enables uh, almost it's like the flip side of the coin. Yeah, well said. Oh, and Rodolfo, do you want to respond? No, no, yeah, so, like, I, I don't disagree with anything you guys are saying. I, I just, I think I'm just, I'm still sort of stuck on on the risk of the recovery uh, as a point of failure um, versus, like, you know, the this, this script itself, like, all the op stuff, like, the, the op vault stuff is, is really amazing. Um, is, is there, like, essentially like more more thought or more um more ways we could do the recovery so that the recovery is less um uh is is less risky in terms of its simplicity um I, yeah I, I don't know if we can actually simplify it kind of more more than it already is and, and actually one thing you said previously that i didn't want to respond to real quick is that it, it, you know, to maintain the recovery path, you're not actually you don't have to maintain two pieces of information because um, if if the XPUB you know recovery uh, is derivable from the private key, then really all you need to do is is have that you know 
um, private key uh, uh, on hand to be able to operate the recovery path potentially. But, you know, I, I just think if you do something really, really paranoid, like roll a bunch of dice and generate, you know, um, uh, uh, an offline recovery key, like that's not something that's at all practical to have as a daily part of your, say, multi-sig arrangement. But, you know, it, it, it allows you to allocate that kind of security um in your setup with with the appropriate granularity and so i I just think if you if you treat your recovery path in that way you know if you want to above and beyond just being an uncorrelated mechanism of accessing your coins into like i'm going to be totally tinfoil generate this thing with dice like that allows the crazy dice generation you know um key type to be a part of your setup without actually impairing you know your operational complexity or, or, or ability. So I see it as a really, really good trade-off. And I mean, I think you can definitely make the argument that, uh, you know, one vault configuration is not going to be as desirable as another vault configuration. But I, I think something like this mechanism gives you like a massive granularity um, uh, of different options to, to come up with with security that's just like a lot simpler and better than we have today. Um, so, like, I, I could take this offline if if this is sort of like beyond the scope of of this call, but uh, and you guys let me know. But uh, I, I guess like the the issue here is you have you have essentially this this key now that's one piece of information, right? Um, it, it you know it puts me back to you know again like I could just have you know a single sig passphrase and and sort of like achieve a very similar level of security because there's still like the same amount of keys or or the same amount of like secret exposed um, could could you make the recovery key maybe be a multi-sig oh yeah uh, the recovery key can can be any construction what's what's okay. amazing that oh sorry is somebody trying to speak here um, what's amazing one one amazing use case to me is the hostage use case so let's say someone breaks into your house and they're holding you hostage. You could configure a vault in such a way that to, to, to spend it, to unvault it normally, you have a week's worth of delay. But then to sweep it to the recovery path, the recovery path might be a tap tree construction where um, it's only spendable you know, by a quorum of keys after a year. So basically you're in a position where no matter what happens, the people you know, breaking in and, and holding you hostage can't access those coins um, no matter what you do. Uh, um, outside of a week, so I, I think that's just something that you like can't do. For example, without vaults. Okay, yeah, so I, I'm sold on that now because, like, the hostage situation is kind of my jam here on how we think about this stuff. Um, you, you know, the the dark thoughts really need to happen, like when you're thinking about this the single points of failure, uh, and and I think that if if the recovery key is essentially you know, like non-spendable to your uh, to where you'd send it if there's a gun to your head. Uh, like now, now you're starting to sort of like have a way to truly sort of prevent yourself from from giving the money away, right? Uh, provably, which is the yeah, most exactly. To be clear, you know, this is I think one of the complexity gotchas, and this is why I sort of I said well thought out construction. Um, you want to be sure that your recovery 
setup is you know highly uh, you know proactively strong because uh, you know I think this is really what Rodolfo was getting at is that if you have a very weakly constructed recovery wallet, then you know one of the dangers is uh, of course there's the sort of coercion aspect, but one of the other dangers is that an attacker may uh, you know spend a lot of time not targeting your vault, but actually targeting compromising your recovery wallet. And once they have that compromise, they can take as long as they want to then either start to compromise your vault or to somehow uh, trick you or social engineer you into thinking that your vault is being compromised and basically you know, tricking you into sending your funds into what is an already compromised recovery wallet. So you know, that's one of the dangerous situations you want, you want to avoid. I love the discussion right now. I have one more question that is sort of a little in a different direction, and then I also think um, I, I want to give everyone ch a chance to, to put in some more thoughts, uh, quick thoughts, but we have a couple more items on our, our agenda for today. Um, if any of you have some urgent or bigger discussions still, maybe uh, just raise your hand in, in Twitter spaces. Uh, otherwise, my question is, James, you mentioned a couple of times that a watchtower-like thing could be possible. Now, with a watchtower, it is obvious if somebody spends an old rescinded state because the secret has been shared already. But uh, in your vault construction, the um, up unvault would look the same between whether you sent it or somebody else sent it. So how would how would you tell a watchtower not to to sweep the funds to your vault do you have to basically like you call your bank when you go abroad uh, tell your watchtower hey i'm actually unvaulting myself yeah exactly so there would be some amount of interaction between you and the watchtower whether that's you pre-authorizing withdrawal or whether that's the watchtower actually reaching out to you and saying hey it looks like your coins are headed to this target. Did you authorize this? Okay, so basically, uh, some callback mechanism. Yeah. All right, um, Jameson Rodolfo, thank you a lot for your thoughts. Do you have more comments on this right now? Otherwise, maybe we'll we'll get to the remaining points. Uh, I mean, my only comment is, you know, I've started thinking about this more again recently. And I've, I've been looking through the history, you know, decade-long history of talking about covenants in general, and and then more recently, uh, vaults, is that you know, this is, I believe, a, a, a type of, you know, Bitcoin primitive or a type of Bitcoin functionality that is sorely missing, and it's, it's not something that you know it should only be interesting to like institutional users or whatever i think this type of construction like i said gives you a whole new facet of uh you know bitcoin security and reactivity and that this is something that i think every wallet developer and every self-custody user who has a non-trivial amount of money should be really interested in seeing push forward um, this is this is very similar to how we think about trick pins. You know, is this idea of constructing the straps, and and sort of like how how 
how you, you essentially like you defang your attacker by like creating all this complication and this labyrinth where they don't understand what's going to happen next and, and sort of like and you de-risk yourself with provable things um i i think like, i'd love to uh to to find a few of you guys to uh, maybe like talk for two hours about this recorded um because I, I think it would be great to explore this i personally like missed a lot of this because i don't follow the mailing list anymore um but uh, I, I'd love to to explore further. Thank, thanks for putting this together. Yeah, man. Just hold a uh, you know a little retreat up in Canada, and we can come hang out and talk about uh, horrible security outcomes. <laughs> We're gonna do this on video. Well, okay. All right, James. Well, thank you for joining us. You're, you're welcome to stay on as we go through the rest of the newsletter. But if you have things that you need to do, we understand if you need to drop. Um, it's always great to have uh, firsthand folks working on these proposals explain their proposal and answer questions. Um, so thank you for providing that value to, to us and the listeners. Thanks so much for having me on to talk about vaults. All right, moving on to the next section of the newsletter, changes to services and client software. So this is a monthly segment that we do where we look at changes to software that isn't our core normal software, um, client software, applications, software packages that use the Bitcoin or Lightning protocols. Um, and some of those are exchanges, some of those are client libraries. Um, and as the author of this section each month, I also welcome any input that folks have. You can tag the Optech Twitter handle, you can tag my personal handle. Um, and if there's something that we're not covering that you think falls in the capacity of Bitcoin Optech and our interest in Bitcoin technology being implemented, let us know. Uh, the first one for this month is Kraken announcing sending to Taproot addresses. So they had a blog post here that links off to a few Taproot related resources, and they are now supporting the ability to withdraw to um, a BEC32M address. So that's great. Um, and, and obviously with an exchange, the, the withdrawal process is the equivalent to send support in a, a normal wallet. So it's nice that they have that merch. I'm sure you're happy to see that. Yes, definitely. By the way, if anybody is interested, we maintain a list of the services and wallets that support sending to Taproot addresses already on wentaproot.org. Excellent. The next item here is a new library for Whirlpool CoinJoin. And there's a Rust client now that is compatible with Samurai's uh, Whirlpool protocol and and. One interesting potential application of this is since it's in Rust um, and something like BDK is also in Rust that you could now have the ability to add coin join services to your BDK based wallet. Merch, any comments on Whirlpool, Rust Whirlpool client? Nope. Next item here is Ledger supporting Miniscript. So Ledger has a couple of different firmwares. There's a Bitcoin only, and then there's a general firmware. And in their latest Bitcoin-specific firmware, version 2.1.0, um, that firmware now supports Miniscript. And they had announced this previously, and we noted a blog post there where they get into to some of the details and limitations of that. But if you have a Ledger device and you're running that latest firmware, there is some Miniscript support. So that's great to see. 
Yeah, that's super exciting, I think. I also saw that the author of that blog post is here. So if somebody has questions, we might be able to facilitate. This Miniscript support in Ledger also a, a bit rolls into the Liana wallet that was released. Um, so the, the first version of the Liana wallet was announced. There's a blog post around that. This is from the team that provides any similar enterprise type solutions, Revault, and they have this Liana wallet. And the first version here is a single signature wallet with a time lock recovery key. Um, and then future iterations on this product could involve using tap, Taproot to do this, multi-sig wallets, and then time decaying multi-sig features. So right now, the, the use case is a single, single signature, um, but if uh, for whatever reason you lose access to that, whether that's um, an inheritance plan and, and you die or you, you lose those initial keys, there's this time lock recovery key where uh, a second key becomes enabled after a certain timeout. I think the example they gave in the blog post was after a year, you can use this recovery key to recover the funds. And so there's obviously some interesting real world use cases for that. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. So basically, if you use this um, in the long term, once uh, Taproot has a Miniscript support, which is currently not the case yet, you would be able to have essentially what looks like a single sig key, and then a uh, leaf uh, in your script tree, where eventually your heirs could spend your money if your UTXO ages more than one year. So you would um, choose the trade-off that you have to move your funds once a year, but then if you cannot long any longer move your funds, your heirs would automatically get access to that by holding their own keys. And I think this is a very simple and effective construction on how to ensure, uh, how to have a built-in deadman switch that transfers ownership of your coins to somebody else after a delay uh, without uh, like compromising uh, security before the delay is, is like, you can share keys directly with heirs, but what if the heirs just decide to take your money uh, as a simple counterexample of how that might go wrong? Um, so anyway, this um, Liana wallet is um, is a very simple construction and, and enables something that a lot of people have spent uh, time thinking about in the past few years, like what happens if to your stash if you... If you croak. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I think especially when Taproot become, gets Miniscript support, this will get um, nicer still because right now the construction would explicitly tell everybody what you're doing in your pay to witness script hash output. And that, of course, reduces your privacy. But once uh, you can build it with Taproot, it would be very clean. And in that Liana blog post, they also mention this ledger supporting Miniscript as one of the hardware devices you can use to sign for such a construction. So those two are somewhat related. And then the final announcement for changes to client and service software for this month is the Electrum 4.3.3. 
Um, I thought this was worth noting. There's nothing groundbreaking here, but just general improvements for Lightning, for handling PSBTs, for working with hardware signers, and then some improvements to their build system as well. Merch, any comments on the Electrum release? Yeah, I, I was just thinking how nice it is that this standard of PSBTs is getting out there. So partially signed Bitcoin transactions, of course, is uh, essentially a way how to communicate about um, partially signed transactions, as in it makes it much easier for multiple parties or one party with multiple devices to create transactions. And in line with other things people are thinking about, like vaults, like inheritance, like uh, cool tap, tap scripts. Uh, I think that hopefully we'll get to a future where more people build transactions together and if you uh, basically create uh, multi-party transactions, coin joins, which just will increase privacy manifold in the long run if we can facilitate making this easier. And all the tools are starting to come together to make it much easier. Moving on to the releases section for this newsletter, there's HWI 2.2.0 and some features that are notable from that release that happened last week are uh, if you're using the Bitbox 02 uh, hardware signer, the Taproot key path, uh, it can, you can spend using that Taproot key path and it's also available on the display. Uh, another feature is that Ledger Bitcoin app that we just mentioned previously, that 2.1.0 support is added to HWI. And uh, a final notable feature I thought was the allowing Trezors, um, if you have a passphrase enabled, you can work without the passphrase uh, specified by defaulting to an empty string passphrase. Merch, any comments on 2.2.0 HWI? Nope, but cool that we get more pay to tap support on hardware wallets. It's coming. Rodolfo, do you want to comment on, on why it's a good idea to allow that empty passphrase? Oh, yeah. So that was not a great thing. Um, so <laughs> if you identify to an attacker that a passphrase is required, you're essentially telling the attacker to keep on beating you. So um, having... Um, having the empty passphrase now means that you know the attacker doesn't know that a passphrase ex exists, which is one of the best benefits of the passphrase. Um, so, so that's uh, uh, my comment there. Moving on to Sorry, basically improves the, the plausible deniability in a hostage situation, which uh, multiple of our speakers today seem to be very fond of. It's uh, you know it's uh, it's something that does happen and uh, it will happen more as the space grows. But but also like you can think about it like also as somebody who's trying to evil mage you or exfiltrate. If they don't know a passphrase exists in your existing compromise system, right, where you're using their wallet maybe connected. Uh, you're also preventing that sort of like maybe non-wrench attack from from uh, being successful or, or the person seeking further. Or talking about the watchtower setup earlier, you could have a small amount sitting in the non-passphrase standard path. And if that gets spent, your watchtower moves all your funds to your highly secured recovery path from your watch because uh, clearly your wallet has been compromised because somebody has spent your dummy um, honeypot amount. 
We have two notable code changes this week. The first one is Core Lightning 5751, which deprecates support for creating new pay to script hash wrapped SegWit addresses. So right now in Core Lightning, uh, well, before this change, well, I, I guess it, it, this doesn't take effect for another couple of versions, but there was two ways. You could have a native SegWit back 32 address, or you could have a pay to script hash wrapped SegWit address, and they've removed uh, or deprecated support for that wrapped SegWit version. And they've also noted that they hope by the time that this is deprecated, that there would be a taproot version available. Merch, any thoughts there? Well, you know, I think, uh, so this week I've spent a lot of time talking to some people, and I don't know if some people saw here, but um, I think that uh, the the old output types are have quite a few disadvantages. And... Um, a lot of the privacy benefits of Taproot, for example, will only unlock when a big portion of the space has moved towards using that one output type. Because one one of the privacy downsides of introducing a new output type is, of course, that temporarily it further splinters the UTXO set, uh, which add, adds a fingerprint. But then in the very long run, since now pay to taproot outputs allow us to do multisig frost constructions uh, to have the hidden tree paths that only get used if they are needed. Um, a lot more outputs will look homogenous in the long run. So I, I will always applaud when people uh, deprecate these old, less efficient, more or less private output types moving the space towards adopting these newer types. Um, I've talked about this last week a little bit at the end already, too. Uh, we we saw a pretty big spike in the pay-to-taproot outputs recently. I, I think that it might be from um, uh, LND rolling out pay-to-taproot as their default address type, uh, or maybe there's other wallets that are doing that now, too. But uh, I, I think that just in the long run, more schemes uh, coming out that have explicit pay-to-taproot support or actually build only on taproot will move us to to where so many people are using taproot that you do not stand out as a taproot adopter anymore. And uh, that'll, that'll be a very nice outcome. Anyway, um, how did I get to this? <laughs> oh, yeah. Deprecating support. Oh, the page script hash wrapper is especially ugly because it just basically adds uh, some, what is it, 32, 34 bytes of, of useless junk data that you add. So, yeah, if you can use page to witness script hash over page to script hash wrapped, uh, page to witness script hash, you should always do that. Before we tackle this last change for this week, I wanted to call for any questions or comments. So if you have a question or comment, please raise your hand or request speaker access, and we can get to that after this last one. BIPs 1378 adds the BIP 324 for encrypted P2P transport protocol. Um, so this is something that has been a proposal for a while. I think it was um, initially under BIP 151 and it was a new proposal under BIP 324. So that's officially been merged into the BIPs repository. 
Merch, do you want to give a quick overview on encrypted transport? Yeah, sure. Um, so basically, this replaces how we uh, originally created connections between nodes, and it will uh, encrypt all the communication between nodes that participate in this new network service. Uh, it has a new set of commands on how to communicate what you're asking for, which is slightly more efficient. So we can actually make the whole communication layer between nodes encrypted without increasing the amount of bandwidth it takes to communicate between nodes. Uh, what this does is it just generally increases the cost of passive uh, observers to find out what's going on on the Bitcoin network. For example, if they want to learn uh, what node originated a transaction, previously an ISP might be in a position where they always see it because the node that originated a specific transaction sits in their network. And uh, since Bitcoin traffic is currently unencrypted, when it goes through the ISP, they see, oh, this is the first time I see a Bitcoin transaction. Sure, they would have to run software that logs that specifically. But now with BIP324, you would have to actively run um, the Bitcoin Core software, and you would have to actively man in the middle all of the encrypted connections in order to read that sort of information. So it just raises the cost of a passive observer. And then in the long term, uh, I think that we might also pursue add-ons to that where we uh, want to have an authentication scheme uh, between nodes. So if you want to, for example, explicitly communicate with your full node at home from your mobile wallet as a source of truth, uh, then you would be able to facilitate that directly through the Bitcoin uh, network. Uh, as in, when you connect to your node, you can also use that as an authentication uh, that you're talking to explicitly your own node at home. And that, in turn, would allow us to build a lot of cool other stuff on top of that. Um, so uh, this is pretty exciting. This uh, supersedes in a really old proposal from, I think, 2015 by Jonas Schnelli. Uh, so yeah, long time coming. And uh, looks like it's really shaping up to, to get there soon. Correction. Uh, this was mentioned. You are, your audio seems to stutter for me. Um, I don't know. Can you hear me normal? Uh, one, it's only on testnet, but mainnet will be coming in a few, few weeks. And second, Rodolfo, is, uh, are you hearing the same stuttering, or is that just my? No, oh, I, I heard that too. I thought it was my phone. Okay, I think that Mike's connection is currently suffering. He was saying something about uh, the implementation of BIP324, I think, but I, I can't really hear what he's saying. Um, yeah, uh, let's just give him one minute to see if he can recover. LTP, uh, what do you have to say? LTP? Oh, hi, are you taking questions? Yeah, uh, you're up. What did you want to know? Uh, thanks. Uh, I'm kind of doing the rounds a bit today. I'm a bit fresh on sending. So um, I thought while I've got all the, the biggest brains in the space, I'd, I'd ask you guys. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a double pack question, really. Um, as I said, um, I'm sending for the first time. I've got a good setup. It's air-gapped, and I'm using core. And um, the text comes up in red 
when it's a minus value. I just wanted to check that that's correct. That's typical of, of looking at um, recent transactions uh, in red because it's a bit alarming um, to see it and I don't see any guidance anywhere about it. Okay, uh, on your air gap machine, you will obviously not see your um, node learning about tra new transactions from the network. So, um, so this I is think specific you will have some to Bitcoin Core interface, and it surprisingly, also comes up on Sparrow.